Welcome to Imaginately Podcast, where we share stories both old and new to transport and inspire you. I'm your host, R.K. Smith, and this season we're back with Princess Irene and Curdie in part two of George MacDonald's beloved series, The Princess and Curdie. So settle in and get cozy as your imagination takes flight. Chapter 22, The Lord Chamberlain. Let's begin. At noon, the Lord Chamberlain appeared. With a long, low brow and paper in hand, he stepped softly into the room. Greeting his majesty with every appearance of the profoundest respect, and congratulating him on the evident progress he had made, he declared himself sorry to trouble him. But there were certain papers, he said, which required his signature, and therewith drew nearer to the king, who lay looking at him doubtfully. He was a lean, long man with a small head, bald over the top and tuft at the back and about the ears. He had a very thin, prominent, hooked nose and a quantity of loose skin under his chin and about the throat, which came craning up out of his neckcloth. His eyes were very small, sharp and glittering, and looked black as jet. He had hardly enough of a mouth to make a smile with. His left hand held the paper and the long, skinny fingers of his right, a pen just dipped in ink. But the king, who for weeks had scarcely known what he did, was today so much himself as to be aware that he was not quite himself. And the moment he saw the paper, he resolved that he would not sign without understanding and approving of it. He requested the Lord Chamberlain, therefore, to read it. His lordship commenced at once, but the difficulties he seemed to encounter, and the fits of stammering that seized him, roused the king's suspicion tenfold. He called the princess. I trouble his lordship too much, he said to her. You can read print well, my child. Let me hear how you can read writing. Take that paper from his lordship's hand and read it to me from beginning to end, while my lord drinks a glass of my favorite wine and watches for your blunders. "'Pardon me, your majesty,' said the Lord Chamberlain, with as much of a smile as he was able to extemporize. "'But it were a thousand pities to put the attainments of Her Royal Highness to a test altogether too severe. Your majesty can scarcely with justice expect the very organs of her speech to prove capable of compassing words so long and to her so unintelligible.' "'I think much of my little princess and her capabilities,' returned the king, more and more aroused. Pray, my lord, permit her to try. Consider, your majesty, the thing would be altogether without precedent. It would be to make sport of statecraft, said the lord chamberlain. Perhaps you are right, my lord, answered the king, with more meaning than he intended should be manifest, while to his growing joy he felt new life and power throbbing in heart and brain. So, this morning, we shall read no further. I am indeed ill-able for business of such weight. Will your majesty please sign your royal name here? Said the Lord Chamberlain, preferring the request as a matter of course, and approaching with the feather end of the pen pointed to a spot where there was a great red seal. Not today, my lord, replied the king. It is of greatest importance, your majesty, softly insisted the other. "'I descried no such importance in it,' said the king. "'Your majesty heard but a part, and I can hear no more today. 
I trust your majesty has ground enough, in a case of necessity like the present, to sign upon the representation of his loyal subject in Chamberlain? Or shall I call the Lord Chancellor? he added, rising. There is no need. I have the very highest opinion of your judgment, my lord, answered the king. That is, with respect to means, we might differ as to ends. The Lord Chamberlain made yet further attempts at persuasion, but they grew feebler and feebler, and he was at last compelled to retire without having gained his object. And well might his annoyance be keen, for that paper was the king's will, drawn up by the attorney general. Nor until they had the king's signature to it was there much use in venturing farther. But his worst sense of discomfiture arose from finding the king with so much capacity left for the doctor had pledged himself so to weaken his brain that he should be as a child in their hands, incapable of refusing anything requested of him. His lordship began to doubt the doctor's fidelity to the conspiracy. The princess was in high delight. She had not for weeks heard so many words, not to say words of such strength and reason, from her father's lips. Day by day he had been growing weaker and more lethargic, he was so much exhausted, however, after this effort, that he asked for another piece of bread and more wine, and fell fast asleep the moment he had taken them. The Lord Chamberlain sent in a rage for Dr. Kelman. He came, and while professing himself unable to understand the symptoms described by his lordship, yet pledged himself again that on the morrow the king should do whatever was required of him. The day went on. When his majesty was awake, the princess read to him, one storybook after another, and whatever she read, the king listened as if he had never heard anything so good before, making out in it the wisest meanings. Every now and then he asked for a piece of bread and a little wine, and every time he ate and drank, he slept, and every time he woke, he seemed better than the last time. The princess bearing her part, the loaf was eaten up and the flagon emptied before night. The butler took the flagon away and brought it back filled to the brim, but both were thirsty and hungry when Curdie came again. Meantime, he and Lena, watching and waking alternately, had plenty of sleep. In the afternoon, peeping from the recess, they saw several of the servants enter hurriedly, one after the other, draw wine, drink it, and steal out. But their business was to take care of the king, not of his cellar, and they let them drink. Also, when the butler came to fill the flagon, they restrained themselves, for the villain's fate was not yet ready for him. He looked terribly frightened, and had brought with him a large candle and a small terrier, which latter indeed threatened to be troublesome, for he went roving and sniffing about until he came to the recess where they were. But as soon as he showed himself, Lena opened her jaws so wide and glared at him so horribly that, without even uttering a whimper, he tucked his tail between his legs and ran to his master. He was drawing the wicked wine at that moment and did not see him, else he would doubtless have run too. When supper time approached, Curdie took his place at the door into the servants' hall. But after a long hour's vain watch, he began to fear he should get nothing. There was so much idling about as well as coming and going. It was hard to bear, chiefly from the attractions of a splendid loaf just fresh out of the oven, which he longed to secure for the king and princess. 
At length his chance did arrive. He pounced upon the loaf and carried it away, and soon after got hold of a pie. This time, however, both loaf and pie were missed. The cook was called. He declared he had provided both. One of themselves, he said, must have carried them away for some friend outside the palace. Then a housemaid, who had not long been one of them, said she had seen someone like a page running in the direction of the cellar with something in his hands. Instantly, all turned upon the pages, accusing them one after another. They denied, but nobody believed one of them. Where there is no truth, there can be no faith. To the cellar, they all set out to look for the missing pie and loaf. Lena heard them coming, as well she might, for they were talking and quarreling loud and gave her master warning. They snatched up everything and got all signs of their presence out at the back door before the servants entered. When they found nothing, they all turned on the chambermaid and accused her not only of lying against the pages, but of having taken the things herself. Their language and behavior so disgusted Curdie, who could hear a great part of what passed, and he saw the danger of discovery now so much increased that he began to devise how best at once to rid the palace of the whole pack of them. That, however, would be a small gain so long as the treacherous officers of state continued in it. They must be first dealt with. A thought came to him, and the longer he looked at it, the better he liked it. As soon as the servants were gone, quarreling and accusing all the way, they returned and finished their supper. Then Curdie, who had long been satisfied that Lena understood almost every word he said, communicated his plan to her, and knew by the wagging of her tail and the flashing of her eyes that she comprehended it. Until they had the king safe through the worst part of the night, however, nothing could be done. They had now merely to go on waiting where they were until the household should be asleep. This waiting and waiting was much the hardest thing Curdie had to do in the whole affair. He took his mattock and, going into the long passage, lighted a candle end, and proceeded to examine the rock on all sides. But this was not merely to pass the time. He had a reason for it. When he broke the stone in the street over which the baker fell, its appearance led him to pocket a fragment for further examination, and since then he had satisfied himself that it was the kind of stone in which gold is found, and that the yellow particles in it were pure metal. If such stone existed here in any plenty, he could soon make the king rich and independent of his ill-conditioned subjects. He was therefore now bent on examination of the rock, nor had he been at it long before he was persuaded that there were large quantities of gold in the half-crystalline white stone, with its veins of opaque white and of green, of which the rock, so far as he had been able to inspect it, seemed almost entirely to consist. Every piece he broke was spotted with particles and little lumps of lovely greenish-yellow, and that was gold. Hitherto he had worked only in silver, but he had read and heard talk and knew, therefore, about gold. As soon as he had got the king free of rogues and villains, he would have all the best and most honest miners, with his father at the head of them, to work this rock for the king. It was a great delight to him to use his mattock once more. The time went quickly, and when he left the passage to go to the king's chamber, he had already a good heap of fragments behind the broken door. 
Thank you for joining me today. I'm so glad we were able to imagine this story together. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything from Imaginately Podcast. And be sure to tell your friends so they can imagine with us too. Until next time, happy dreams, whether by day or night. Hey friend, R.K. Smith here, Canadian author, editor, and storyteller. If you have a story idea you'd like to see on this podcast, go to rksmith.ca and send me a message. I'd love to hear from you and want to share the stories you want to hear with the world.